This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, the award-winning young author J.M. Holmes is joined in conversation by Stephanie Ann Johnson to discuss the inspiration for his debut collection of short stories. This event was recorded on August 23rd, 2018 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. So, thank you all for coming this evening to um, partake in this magnificent novel and learn more about the author. Um, really appreciate your coming to support our programs here. So, Jeff, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? The biography was read, it was brief, but tell us something interesting. Tell us something, something. It was, it was intentionally brief. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think uh, writers were, were painfully introverted a lot, so we keep it short and sweet. But, um, Let's see, so uh, I was born in Denver. No, I'm kidding. Um, I've been writing, putting things down on paper since before I can remember. It started out with rap and fantasy. I was, a, I was a big nerd growing up, like Lord of the Rings. I had to hide my books in school not to get bullied. I know that's like odd to see how big I am and be like, you got bullied? Um, but yeah, so I've been kind of in love with the written word since as long as I can remember, and um, also basketball and, and writing kind of were both tangential in my life coming up, and not so much anymore as I've packed on the pounds. It's been more about the writing. Uh, moved around a lot, and from that, I think I've gathered a lot of inspiration from different places, like a strong sense of place. And in the book, too, I think you, you, you feel um, the city of Pawtucket, but you, you also feel some places in Washington State where I had family and, uh, f you know, um, Fort McCord up there and, and kind of having a strong sense of, of those places was important to me. Um, I'm a music, I'm a hip-hop head to the death. Uh, I <laughs> can't, can't live without it. If I had to choose between that and, and uh, written literature, I, I would be in a tough spot. I'd be in a really tough spot. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about Rhode Island. I think I've driven through there once. It didn't take long, did it? It didn't take long. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, well, Rhode Island, so it takes about uh, 40 minutes, if you're going a little over the speed limit, to get from top to bottom. But we got a lot of heart. Um, the food is amazing. It's got a, a lot of Italian communities and influence, Dominican, Colombian. Um, our, our population quadruples in the summer. Everyone comes for our beaches. You know, that money from New York come and ruin everything. Yep. Uh, we talked lot. about that in the room there. Uh, yeah. New Yorkers. <laughs> New Yorkers, man. <clears throat> um, but, but seriously, it's, it's a place that is, is so, so near and dear to my heart. It's every time I come back, although in the winter, I, there's something about it in the winter that is extremely bleak because maybe because it does empty out and you can't really be, it's cold, you know, it's not quite as cold as like Maine, but it's, mm -hmm. it's cold. And, um, but there's a, there's a beauty to it too. I think I'm a fall baby. I'm a Virgo. 
So ah, Virgo. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, <laughs> I feel like Virgos are always getting the worst. You know, the, I'm not gonna say another word I, about Virgos. Yeah. I just had my birthday last weekend. I'm not saying another word about Virgos. How we get the worst horoscopes? Um, but I, something about the something about the fall on Rhode Island. It, it as the starts to dry out a little bit. It's not as humid, and the water turns like a deeper color blue almost. Mm. And the light is a little bit weaker in the sky in like late August, early September. It's just nothing like it, you know? How has uh, Rhode Island changed over time and where does it show up in your novel here? <sighs> well, in, I mean, in my lifetime, it, it's gotten uh, some, some waves of new communities and new pockets. Like when, when I was growing up, there was, there was no Asian influence, no Indian restaurants. Um, now you can, there, there's those communities popping up. There's like a, a strangely growing Russian community. Uh, yeah. Um, but I think before my time, it was obviously Pawtucket was a manufacturing city. Slater, Slater Mill, you had uh, right on the, on the Blackstone was textiles. So you have those leftover kind of mansion homes that have been converted into, uh, you know, three family homes. They just kind of, they kind of split them, sometimes four family homes, depending on how, how big and, and kind of where you're at. And uh, so it's really changed. It's all these kind of, what used to be estates are now just people stacked on top of each other, kind of getting by. It's kind of in Pawtucket and CF. Um, and so it's, it's gone the way of a lot of kind of post-industrial cities in that way and i don't think i think most of the time in the media you see boston and you see it with like the southie the the, the white irish bent and you don't really see all the black and dominican lives that are like in that part of the world you know in that part of the country um so yeah i hope i hope some of that comes through in the book it does yeah. it does I know you wanted to read something from the beginning yeah, to get yeah. us started here so yeah i'm gonna read a little bit from the from the very opening uh, the first story is titled, What's Wrong With You, What's Wrong With Me? How many white women you been with? The room was filled with good smoke and we drifted off behind it. What's your number? Dub looked at Rye real serious like he was asking about his mom's health. I leaned forward from the couch and took the burning nub of joint from his outstretched hand. We called him Dub because his name was Lazarus Livingston, double L. His parents named him to be a football star. He could play once upon a time, but not like Rye. Rolls, who was too high, chimed in. Stop it, bruh, that's just not important. Yeah, it is. I'm finna touch every continent, Dub said. Why it's not a continent, Rolls said. You know what I mean. I know you never wanted geography be, Rolls said. The room was streaked with haze like we dropped cream in a coffee, but Rolls never cracked any windows. He smoked like a pro, even still burn blunts, and let the smoke box out the room. He had the leather furniture from his dad's old office at the camera shop, and we sank into it. His new place was nice, on the north end of Blackstone, but before you hit the old money houses on the east side of Providence. These days, he got lit every morning before work, after his bowl of smacks. His latest gig was shooting an ad for the ambulance chaser, Anthony Izzo. I was about to ask him if he still painted. Why won't you answer the question? Dub continued. Gio would answer. He looked at me. Wouldn't you, G? Don't play this game, I said. How many? Man, G don't count, Rye said. He's mixed. That's a performance-enhancing drug. He tagged me light on the chest. He speaks, Dub said. Shut the fuck up, Rye said. 
Chill with that, Roll said. My place is a sanctuary. Stop it with the Buddhist bullshit, Dub said. I put the joint out. Rye started rolling another. Roll stood but put his hand on the armrest to steady himself. It's Brahmin, he said. Brah, shut the fuck up, Rye said. Roll smacked his lips and looked at Rye. You two belong together, he said. I'm getting a drink. Give me one, I said. Rolls wiped his eyes and left to the kitchen. Really, though, why are you being shy? Dub nudged Rye. Their huge frames looked goofy on the couch together, boulders sinking into the leather, jostling each other like idiots. Nigga, stop. I'm rolling. You'll ruin the J. My God, you never fucked a white chick. Don't be stupid. You haven't. Rye began licking the edges and shaking the cone down. Don't pack it too tight, I said. Maddie teach you that? Rye said. Rye knew I didn't roll well, but my girl rolled J's better than him and rolls. She kept the J loose enough to pull well, but tight enough not to burn sloppy or canoe. I loved watching her manicured fingers at work. The first time I brought her back to the city and showed her the spots, she rolled our weed and talked above us, underneath us, and around us. My boys cracked jokes and looked out for her. They treated her like a long-lost porcelain-colored cousin. She said our outdoor weed was garbage. We called them middies. She called it swag. Both equated to trash. Maddie said, Rye said that Maddie was the first woman he ever bought a drink for, but I'd seen his lying ass spend money on chicks in high school. Maddie liked the area so much that she decided to live there when she got a finance job offer in Foxborough a few years later. The commute was about 20 minutes, but she said the money she saved on rent was worth it. I didn't buy it. She wanted to prove she could hang. That's one hell of a white girl, Rye said. Don't change the subject. We're talking about you, I said. How is the old lady? Dub said. Nah, this is about him, I said. Dub pulled on his nose the way he did when he was thinking of some heinous shit. I just want to know how the treads are, he said. Yeah, how's it hitting, Rye said. I leveled my eyes at him. Don't talk about my girl like that. Stop being soft, Dub said. He's team light skin, Rye said. Let him be. Yeah. That sets it up, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, you're either in or out. <laughs> <laughs> so do you know these people? Oh, yes. Tell me about these yes, people. Yes, yes, yes. Um, well, I, I won't say anything is, is too memoiristic, but I would say that all, all four of these young men are very near and dear to my heart due to the, the people I grew up with. Um, and I would say that I hope that this collection kind of captures the complexities and the nuances in who they are as people. Because I often think that, and I would say even beginning this process, this publishing process, that people kind of want to paint them with a broad brush, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but the people I grew up with, so much of it is a posture, and that's why people look at it one way, you know? And then if you sit down and chop it up with one of us individually, it's like the world opens up, you know? Like the, the, the floor drops out from underneath you, kind of how, how deep these, these well, like, you know, how deep it goes. Um, so Geo, I guess, would be the moniker for me, my stand-in, mixed, team light skin, uh, <laughs> majestic mulatto, hashtag. Um, and he's kind of born on the outside of this world that he is trying to navigate in. And to do so, I think the, you know, the way he has to communicate and posture sometimes goes to horrific places. 
and I'd say that for all four of them, but I, I'd say him maybe most so is kind of on the outside, this sensitive, more cerebral, introverted type person. Would you describe those posturings as protection? Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Can you sure. say more about that? Yeah, I think I think this this the world of this book is one that your reputation is in some ways all you have, and if you lose it, it's a death sentence, you know, because you will be tested, and if you don't pass that test, it's only going to get worse. Um, so I think that causes the escalation at times to reach fever pitches that. Even if collectively you all want to back down from it, right. you can't. Right. You're at this right. place where you know the bravado is at that 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 place where no one can de-escalate the situation. Mm-hmm. You know. Such so Gio um, roles uh, reminds me of a few friends I had. <laughs> um, your your typical kind of artsy philosophical weed head, uh, you know. And it's it's almost, you know, writing these stories, if you do have a chance to, to read the book, it's almost tragic that he's the one who kind of commits the most egregious transgression um, because it's, but in some ways it's right because he would be another one who's going through great lengths to protect whatever insecurities he has. Um, but I often feel like, that posturing often belies a deep, deep artistic spirit too. And so I think that he is kind of representative of that for me. So it's attack rather than, rather than defend. Yeah, for him, it's, it's answer the question before it's asked. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And always be out in the front. Yeah, I mean, in this first story, he is, he is old, he's a little bit older, so he has come th- kind of through the other end of it, and he's trying to play the peacemaker. But in his younger days, I, I would say it's attack before it's asked. You know, um, and I do think I've seen as my friends have gotten older that they they have come. A lot of them have come through the other side of it. Mm-hmm. The ones that live, yeah, because the ones that's that, that's going to send you to an early the, death. You run one, into the wrong person. Yeah, the ones that live and the ones that are free, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, I I would say, yeah, I would say that he has come through the other side of it in the first story, and he has kind of adopted this almost as a reaction. You know, this Buddhist kind of pseudo. I wouldn't say pacifist, but semblance of passivism <laughs> mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Um, and then and then dub uh i guess if any of the characters are antagonists he is just like that one friend that can't tell jokes so he just provokes people and he just makes everything kind of worse uh and that's not to say that he i mean he has a story in there too where you see that it's also someone who feels like he's letting his life get away from him and it becomes even worse. He doubles down instead of doing what the logical thing would be, and that is kind of to to open up and change. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I guess he's the most hard-headed among them. Um, also, like a lot of friends I have. <laughs> and then Rai is probably the most near and dear to my heart, and he is your stereotypical protector, provider, often makes bad decisions, but is like a lot of the stand-up friends I had to, you know, the the kid you want with you if you're getting into a fight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also the kid who's probably gonna be most likely to stop a fight too mm-hmm. in his own way. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rye is probably the most near and dear to my heart out of any of them, so. Before we get to the, to the women, uh, which of those characters um, is the most vulnerable and which one is the most dangerous? 
Ooh, wow. That's a hard question. Dangerous in what way? Danger to themselves or? Either. However you interpret it. Because, yeah, there's danger to yourself, there's danger to other people, and that may not be the same person. Mm. I think the most vulnerable would be, you know, Geo or Rolls because of their posturing is that kind of at a higher level. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's to cover up that vulnerability. But I would say, and in the same way, it's weird because when you have people who are going through great lengths to appear to be something, they actually tend to be the most dangerous mm-hmm. because they're mm-hmm. the most unokay with themselves. And unpredictable because and, they don't know. Yeah, because they don't know themselves. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to get into politics, but when you have people who... <laughs> you can get into it. You're in, you're in no-cal. Yeah, I mean, when you, you see our, our head of state here, I don't think he knows who he is. <laughs> and I think that's dangerous. That's a yeah. dangerous man. That's yeah, a dangerous fucking so. man. Um, doesn't know who he is and doesn't care who anybody else is. No, that's a bad recipe. He is all posture. He is like the you know the white Michelangelo. I don't know of posture, <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, but yeah, but but in terms of in terms of yeah, so I'd say they're they're both. I say they're both mm. the most vulnerable and the most mm. dangerous because of that. Yeah. And what about the women? The women. The women, I hope, are calling the men on all their shit, but I don't know if that's necessarily true. So you'll have to read it. Let me. Well, you read it, so maybe I did you can, read we can it. get well, into t- that. Tell us, tell us about them as um, characters. Well, I, I got really interested in the relationship between Nicoletta and Dee, the two mother figures in it, because even after, so they um, were both the they both had children with the same man. And even after this man dies, they kind of can't let that go. And I think the way that they exercise their love and ownership and their way they're trying to keep things together is you couldn't have two more different people mm-hmm. kind of going true. at it. You have uh, one that is all out in the open, reckless, blunt, says what's on her mind, carries around a gun. She's like, she's just a loose cannon. And, uh, she she's kind of butting heads with another woman who is Nicoletta, who is kind of just by the book, you know. Let's get this done. Let's schedule our whole lives to the to the five minute mark, you know. And uh, I was really interested in that, and I, I was interested in kind of the legacy that they shared. They're they're inextricably linked. Yeah, you know, the two sides of the same kind of person. Yeah, and, and also that they person. can both create a life with the same man and being so different. Yeah. And and how does one? How do two such different people fall in love and have a successful relationship with the same person, given that you are so different? And it's kind of the capability we have, I guess, to, to, to love each other across those personality boundaries. And what does successful mean in that way, in that context? I mean, I think they both found a, you know, a deep and passionate love. And not, I mean, it's very unsuccessful, I guess, on, on paper. You know, like the, the lives are very messy. But I, I would say that if you find that kind of deep, passionate love, even for X amount of years, I'd say that's a mm-hmm. successful. Well, for relationships alive, it's going to be messy. Yeah, it's going right. to be some mess if it's alive. Yeah. If it's dead, then it's going to go, you know, scheduled to the next five minutes and so on and so forth. It's going to be easy, you know. It's going to be yeah. easy if it's dead. Yeah, yeah, if it's dead. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the two mother figures. The younger sister is kind of a, a high school diva. Um, she's... she's uh, no bullshit either. She takes after her mom, D, in that way. She calls her brother on a lot of his shit. 
Um, and she's also trapped in a way in this family unit that she's almost too young to unpack yet. And she's almost the most mature at 15 or the most grounded, not mature, but the most grounded at 15 than her, you know, 23 year old brother and her 40 year old mother are because she's the only one who's kind of keeping it together as everyone else unravels. Yeah. I love that story outside yeah. Tacoma. That's one yeah. of the still stories. Yeah. I, I like that still, one too. I like that. I can too, still read that story and actually be like, okay, I'm, I'm down. Yeah. I'm getting real sick of some of these stories. I gotta be honest. <laughs> The but stories that, that you wrote yourself? Yeah, the stories that I wrote myself. But I, I, I gotta be, I gotta be honest. I, but I still love outside Tacoma. I yeah. still really like that story. Yeah. Well, let you know. Let's, let's let's keep it fresh in our conversation. Even though you you're getting tired of it. And you, no, no. I mean, I mean just, getting I, tired I, of these. So, if you had to pick a character from Black Panther to drop into one of these stories, who would you pick, and where would you drop them? I mean, I gotta be honest. I was, I was cheering for Michael B. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you drop him into your story. He'd fit it. He'd fit it. He your would story. be the only one that would fit in my story. Everyone else is so together and coming from and the royal family and, yeah, and like yeah. you know has their whole legacy intact. Yeah. And they'd be like, "Who are these people?" Yeah. And, they, and kind of how they are in Black Panther. Like, who are these people? And I think the the diaspora, you know, has you know so many so many clashes within it. You know, the African yeah, absolutely. Diaspora. And I, I mean. That, I think the movie started to touch on it, but again, it's still a superhero movie, so you don't really like dive too deep. But they, they but we can, but we can. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think, and I really appreciate that they brought it up. Yeah. You know, in a movie that's a blockbuster, a popcorn flick, and they still brought it up. But so they yeah. didn't know it was going to be a blockbuster. Oh, they had to know. You think so? You got Ryan Gugler and Kendrick Yeah, well, they, yeah, that's be true. A blockbuster. Now, that's true. Uh, but maybe they didn't know how busting and how blocky and how mega it was going to be yeah i think they're still in the dark about some of that stuff yeah. like crazy rich yeah. agents all these things big, big 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 it blew up yeah i mean but of course diverse interesting stories are gonna blow up i mean mm -hmm. they're just late mm -hmm. yeah well they're late <laughs> they're late. we're not late we're not late they're late they're late, they're late. Yeah, that's right that's uh, right that's right but yeah no definitely michael b i drop him here mm-hmm mm -hmm. and he'd be comfortable he would be running shit. He's always he's Michael B. <laughs> if you had to pick just two words to describe the novel, what would you say? Because I have two words for it. Oh man, just two. I know you're a wordsmith. Two hundred fifty pages. I'm asking you for two. Two. Nerve touching. Mm. Those are the two. Nerve and touching, or is that one? Or is phrase? that a hyphenated? Yeah, you can make it. All right, you can have one more. You can have uh, one more now. Okay. Nerve uh, touching. I like a word that you used earlier. We were talking about food, but robust. Mm. Mm. I'd say I'd say the novel, and I I just kept it just kept going through my my mind as I was reading it. Raw and real. I like you those. know, raw and real. It's mm. very raw, and it's very. You know, it's real. I mean, these are real lives. It's not made up. It's not uh, glossy. It's it's real. I think that's why it is nerve touching. Mm -hmm. You know. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the excerpt I read, you really either are in or out. Yeah. Uh, you know. You know. I mean, if you pick this up in a bookstore, you you'd either take it home or you put it down after the first page. I would assume you kind of know where this this book is coming from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. So tell tell us about your life in L.A. Your aspirations, what you've been going through. We'll get around to the publishing and all that. Um, Talk about raw and real. Tell us about your life there the last three months. I've had some friends be generous and give me some space to crash for very affordable, but I uh, 
that generosity ran out. So if anyone has a link on affordable apartments in LA, uh, I'll give you my info after the reading. Um, working 30 hours in a kitchen, two kitchens actually, and kind of trying to break into the screenwriting world on the, the TV side more, more likely. And really just exploring the, I've never been in a city like LA. It's so vast and sprawling. <laughs> and it's like, it's like 10 cities just mashed up. And the fact that they call it one city is mind boggling to me. It's not really one city. It's not one city. It's not even close. Well, California's not one state either. So there. Uh, yeah. There you have it, right? You are from Nothing Berkeley. Nothing is what it is. <laughs> no, I'm not from Berkeley. You, you, okay. That's where you, I live. You, okay. you know you, I'm from the Bronx. Yeah, we I talked know. about this. You, you've, adop you've adopted I'm going to catch Berkeley. you outside now. <laughs> no, California but, yeah. isn't California isn't isn't one state either. And I mean right. but but LA really is, you know, just a metropolis of of kind of different vibes and coming from the East Coast, I thought it was, you know, sunshine and, be and beaches. It ain't that. Oh yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> it looks it, from from 3000 miles away, it looks like a whole different. And then when you drop in the industry and what it takes to be in the industry and once you're in it or if you're out of it, I mean, it's rough. Yeah, yeah, I mean it is it is a really a grind, but it ultimately I, I think that so many people have access to television and movies that I want that content to be good. You know, I really I think the the world deserves that good, diverse, honest content. And it's starting to happen. I mean, in, Insecure, Atlanta, like there's shows, The Shy, there's shows that are doing it, but overwhelmingly it, it still isn't there. And you know, I, I kind of want to be a part of it. So. Yeah, it's time. I mean, it's time for you. It's time for this kind of work. It's just time. It's overtime actually, but. Yeah, it's late, but. Yeah, but yeah, but uh, now's the moment, yeah. Yeah. And so your aspirations are to, you know, be a screenplay writer. Yeah, for a while, you know mm -hmm. I mean? I still have a, I have a novel cooking. And definitely won't won't put this type of writing down just yet. But I would like the next chapter to be on the screen if possible. Mm -hmm. So, and you know people down there? I got one kind of in my cousin. Yeah, that's good. A cousin, one, cousin. Is one is better than none. One, and then you know it's one, then one, then one. Yeah. Who knows one? Who knows one? I think that that's how it works down there. It is. It is. It is a lot of who you know. Oh yeah, and less of what you can do. Mm -hmm. um, but there's barriers to entry to all this, you know. There really is, you know. It, it, it there's a lot of of access issues that that bar people from entry. Can you that, say that, Can you say a little bit more about that? <laughs> well, I mean, I was telling you the story uh, in the green room. I the first story I submitted to the Parish Review before I had an agent. Same exact story. They responded to me, "No, John. Like they got my name wrong. We don't want it." <laughs> got an agent submitted the same exact story didn't change a word we'd love to publish this and you know that's the work of Iowa that's an MFA that's access you know I had the, the privilege to have recommenders that made me serious to Iowa that made me serious to agents that's right and so it's not it's not a uh, meritocracy right. that, that I'm no, fully, no 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 that I'm fully aware of um, but it's good to know that you know to be aware of that realness because Many people are deluded. You know, I had a friend that lived in L.A. We graduated from, we went to theater school together in Boston, and she went down to Los Angeles to become an actress. Oh, man. And she thought just on her chop she was going to make it. It yeah. can happen. It can. It, it can, you know, but the likelihood is not there. No, it's not. You know, so 
And it's good to sustain yourself knowing that. That's right. And she know? worked in restaurants. You know, the same thing that you were talking about earlier. Worked and worked and worked. And she ultimately went back home, you know, back east. Um, and yeah, and then, I, you know, there's a narrative in L.A. that people who can't cut it leave. And I hate that narrative. Because that narrative is assuming so much about them and about what the industry is. And, mm -hmm. and that bothers me. Because yeah, well, maybe they make that choice. I mean, it doesn't have to be that you're fleeing. Yeah. It could be that you made a different choice to get out of there yeah. and do something different. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I, but I do think that so far out of the two industries, television in Hollywood is by far worse <laughs> in terms of nepotism and barriers to entry. Mm -hmm. But... So if you left LA, would you go to New York? You're done. Nah, I'm not. Are you I, done I was, with that was, coast? No, not done with that coast. But if I was gonna go anywhere, I'd probably go back to Rhode Island. Uh, uh -huh. If I was gonna be on the East Coast, New York is. We talked about it. Yes, yeah, we did. New Yorkers are all like, you know, want to talk about megalomaniacs, and they think everything they have is the best. I know. <laughs> I know. I know, and and, uh, and I get to say that because I'm from there. You I don't know. you don't get to say that too much because you're not from <laughs> See, there. I, I could live there ten years, and you could be like, you ain't from New York. Though. Yeah, right, 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 you know? right, and so right, they, right. No, no one's gonna that's, let you. That's true. Yeah, no one's that gonna let you come and make true. it a home. I want to be somewhere where people invite you in. You know, right. I was in the Midwest for a couple of years, and Milwaukee, for all it has flaws, but the people were real welcoming mm -hmm. in terms of you know showing you around, helping you. That's what I've heard about the Midwest. Um, yeah, and, and so and, and rent's cheap. You know. Yeah, that's what you talked about over there. And New York is like, nah, nah, get out of here. Nah, I nah mean, get out of here. I don't know you. Yeah, no, no one's helping you. No one's doing you any favors. <laughs> People looking at you strange. I remember I, uh, so I was working in, I was working in Salem teaching and living my writer life. So I wasn't when I was on the weekends, I wasn't seeing the light of day too often. And I went out on a Sunday, like after I'd been writing on Friday night, Saturday, and finally on Sunday, um, that's still a lot of time. I, uh, I walked out on a Sunday and I just said hi to somebody, like forgetting that I was near Boston because I should have known immediately. I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm from the area, I know better. So I was like, hey, how you doing? And he's just like, what do you want from me? <laughs> and get out of here. Uh, I, was like, I was like, oh man, yeah, that's right, I'm near Boston. <laughs> I can't say hi, I can't say hi. Oh no, 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 no. And Iowa people would be in the, in the grocery store like, hey, how you doing? And, I do, and I, the East Coast comes out of me, I look, I'm like, what do you want from me? What's up with you? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, the Midwest. I, I would go, I would go back to the Midwest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've flown over the Midwest. I've lived on both coasts. I have a, a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I don't think I could be there. You know, but you gotta give it a you gotta give it a summer when it's warm out near the lake. It's nice. Really, it's nice near Lake Michigan. Summertime. I think there's better places to be in the summer, like Italy, <laughs> Paris. Okay, well, I mean. <laughs> We're talking about we talking about affordability okay. here too. Okay. I think. Yeah, we are talking about affordability. Lake Superior, Lake Superior, hidden gem. Oh, I bet that's beautiful. Hidden yeah. gem, beautiful. hidden gem. Mm -hmm. I kind of don't want to even expose it because it's so hidden. I want it to stay hidden. So yeah. when I want to yeah. go, it's empty. But. Unlike Brooklyn, right? All of a sudden oh. it blew up. I mean, you know, nobody cared. Nobody wanted to be there, and then boom! Now everybody's nah, in everybody there. Everybody wants to be there. Everyone is kicking other people out. It's yeah, I know. I know. I know. I hate to bring it up, but. The food references. The food references. Since neither you nor I ate before this. Oh, yeah, I but know. We, were we, back were, there. we were talking about Italian food um, before everything started. Yeah. But, so food, food plays an important part in this uh, novel. Food, food from my, my so I, uh, my grandmas live with my mom and I since I was little. And for the two of them, food is like love. 
It is. You know, it, well, I, I, it is. I, I mean, I, I, I have adopted Food that. Who is love? My waistline is not appreciating well, that I have adopted have that. And there's that problem. Yeah, <laughs> there is that problem. But but when something was wrong, you know, my mom and grandma would both try to feed me, and one after the other. Even if I just ate my grandma, <laughs> you look hungry, you know, and, and feed me again. And you know, I'm now I'm working in kitchens and, and have been for a couple of years, and I, lo- I I love to feed people. There's um, there is something that you communicate through feeding somebody that is nonverbal, and it it just gets to the it just gets to the heart of things. You know, it's like a human necessity, and to and it's immediate. So writing is so delayed. Yeah. Like I might never know if this is good, like if it's really good, mm-hmm. and you can write something and you can send it off to editors and publishers, and never really know how good it is mm-hmm. or like what it does for mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. But if you cook some delicious food and they bite into it and they just they just like their whole physical they yeah. smile they melt they melt into that place right. and you just like yeah yeah I, like I did that I did that for them that's I was able to give that to somebody oh yeah I worked as a sous chef for a couple of years oh you made sous chef okay that's why I, you're asking I was, me right. <laughs> and before the chef that I worked with uh, she died okay. and you know she trained me and we did that and I really appreciated the food from the other side. I mean, as somebody that's eating food, I had that side of it. But as somebody who's preparing food and following orders from a master chef, it's a different universe. It's a whole different world. It's a whole it's different real world. real militaristic back there. Well, yes, it, dep- chef, it, dep- no, chef, it depends on the kitchen you're in. It depends but. on the kitchen you're in. And we were doing catering, so it was okay. different. Okay. You know, you got to be there and you go out and people were happy and, you know, yeah. glass of wine and stuff like that. But food, yeah, it's tremendously important. Yeah, um, yeah. And I mean, it, it is, it's also just very cultural. You know, yeah, it is to bring extremely. people together. And what do you cook when you're when you have when you have money to cook whatever you want to cook? What do you cook at home? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm a big I'm a big like. Well, I can't because it's L.A. now, but I love soups. So I've been. It's too hot for. I kind of miss. But like back in Milwaukee, I make pho a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, cocida de res, the mm. Mexican beef soup. I like a lot of like heavy stocky, you know. Um, what's the what's the French one? Like the beef stew, the beef bourguignon. bourguignon. Yeah, bourguignon. Mm. There you go. Okay. Mm. Um, See, everybody's gonna get hungry up in here. Now. Yeah, yeah. On my own, I like to. Grill. If I have a grill, I really want to buy a nice grill. Like I, it's it's on the list of things to do when I have some money. And well, first I gotta get a place to have the grill. Uh, but after that, I really want a nice grill so I can just, I love to make myself ribs and steak and I should eat less meat too, but. Yeah, I well, you'll have time in your life to do yeah. that. I mean, what does food mean to the characters in here? What does it, what does it add to the narrative? How does it, what does it do? Well, my, my father. Cause you refer to it a lot in a here. A lot, yeah. I mean, my, my father also loved food and I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty convinced I haven't. That that was part of the the love between my mom and my dad. They loved to feed each other because my dad cooked too. What did your dad cook? Soul food. What straight. kind of soul food? He loved like smothered pork chops and mm. biscuits, and he just he went straight for the for the gut for the arteries. Yeah, he went. He, he was not kind to his arteries. Uh, but I think that their love was a lot around that home building and you know like sharing food, sharing a sense of place. Um, you know, they developed houses together, uh, and and so I think that was really important to them. So for these characters, it, it, well, really for Geo more more than the others, perhaps it, it kind of has just 
been instilled in him that is kind of a way of, of making that connection and sharing that love, so. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing that you ended up in a kitchen, you know, after having so much, having it play such an important part of this. Well, I was in the kitchen kind of before, too. Oh, were so, you? So yeah. say, say more about that. Well, I was in the kitchen in Iowa, too, when I was, okay. writing, when I was writing these. Ah. So it was all... All the same All time. together, yeah, all right. it was all. All right. But yeah, food is food is uh, a staple for me, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to read one of these passages, or have you, or I'll read it, and then you can uh, respond to it and okay. tell us more about it. I love this phrase. The storage complex is dark when we arrive. Rows and rows of units, a miniature city of material lives. So tell us more about that. What's the metaphor? What's okay, so the gist of that story is that they, um, after kind of the patriarchal father's death, both, both sides of the family are coming together to go through his storage about a year later. And uh, for them, for Gio, really, because Gio was kind of estranged from his father. His father was absentee for a lot of his life. So for him, it, it is almost a rediscovery of who this man is. Through his objects. Through his objects, mm-hmm. yeah. And, you know, he finds, like, a roll of check stubs that when he was in the NFL, he was writing to family members. And he's kind of understanding the generosity of this man, kind of coupled with the flaws of this man. He finds a narcotics uh, anonymous pamphlet. And so he's putting all these pieces, this collage of a man together, almost like detective work, you know, to this person that, that you know, birthed him, you know, that he is the blood of. Um, so, yeah, the things we choose to accumulate, I think, are, are very indicative of who we are. Like my, you know, I've been more or less, not living out of my car, but I've been packing my car up to move from spot to spot in L.A. And if you go in there, it's like a nice knife set. Oh. And, oh yeah and like a nice pan oh yeah and a bunch of books and that's yeah. about it you know really important objects and so you know you know a lot about me just from from going through the shit in my car you know mm-hmm. and so I, I think that it's so indicative of who we are as people kind of what we choose to keep and how's that related to miniature cities that part that phrase in terms of the storage uh, space and going through there and well, I mean, that, that's more of a visual. I, I saw it, you know, when you see the boxes kind of leaning, almost like, like skyscrapers, the way they're blocked in together, especially for us East Coasters. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, so that one was more of a visual cue mm-hmm. for me. And it's really, uh, it seems really uh, poignant what's kept and what's discarded. Yeah. You know, and, you know, you, I don't want to give away the book, the uh, the book, but you know the detail and the meticulousness and the fighting mm. over the objects, which is so real and so it's just real. It's just it's like uh, family forensics. You know, you go through all of these things, which mean something to somebody and mean nothing to somebody else, and. Yeah, and no, I mean, I, there's nothing like a funeral to show you the ugliness that is beneath the surface of a family dynamic. People are sometimes their worst selves around those situations, you know? And especially if there's an inheritance, like, oh goodness, the gloves come off, you know? And uh, so for me, that, that was, it definitely influenced the story a lot. Mm-hmm. So. What do you love about this creation? And what's a challenge? 
You said that you're tired. You're tired of it now. Tired of reading it, but it, reading it doesn't it. mean that I don't love it. You know, what do you love about it? Literary baby. Uh, I love that it is unequivocally me. I love that it is, you know, unequivocally mulatto. It is, you know, I feel like a lot of, and that's not true. Like Danzy Senna, Matt Johnson. There's, there's mulatto writers now that are proud to assume that. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about August Wilson, and and you know, you go back yeah, in we time. Were. I love August Wilson. I'm like, he's one of my yeah. favorites. But yep. you go back in Me time. Too. And if a biracial writer could pass, he just became a black writer. And so I feel like now at a time that we can really uh, assume and be proud of and present an identity. And I feel like this book does that. And I feel like it does it with nuance and it does it with honesty. And so I'm really proud of that. And I hope that, I hope that people reading that will feel that way too, you know? Yeah. That's what I really love about it. You know, I think um, could I had to fight with the publishers and editors, and you know, to not change certain parts of it. They wanted to strip parts of it away, and really, a lot of it was the poetic language and stuff they wanted to strip away to make a blunter, more urban fiction story. And did you, did you push back on that? Oh yeah, yeah, no, Good because yeah, because you. this narrator has that, and yeah. that would have been a stripping away of identity, mm-hmm. and that would have been a disservice to mm-hmm. to these people. Be untrue to say that the to almost say that they don't have the capacity for that is what it felt like, and so that pushback was really important to me. Can you say more about the publishing process, how you got from there to there, to here, actually. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's it comes down to an access and, and a privilege question. The MFA Iowa is a place where, you know, people just take off. Books are coming out left and right from Iowa. And it's just kind of like a feeding ground of access for agents come through and editors come through. And they start to take you seriously in a way that they didn't before, even though the writing hasn't changed. You know, I'm sure all the people who went to Iowa were gifted before and all the people who didn't get into Iowa are probably gifted too. You know, it's just the luck of the draw on who read you, mm-hmm. you know, cause you have a student reader first. So it's like if oh. one, if one other mm. person had read me, I wouldn't be here. It's like so, Mm. minuscule of a chance that is crazy you know and it and i'm not i'm not crazy enough to believe that we are one of a kind you know that that like there aren't 50 other writers who deserve to be at iowa that didn't get in that year but will they have the perseverance to apply again and will they have the right reader and it's all about people in the industry who kind of hold the keys taking a shot you know and i'm very thankful for the ones that have Mm-hmm. So, when you have time, do you read? Are you a reader? Yeah, I mean, with these kitchen jobs, not as much lately as I would like to be, but um, historically, yes, what yes. Uh, actually, reading Ohio by uh, Stephen Markley, another Iowa grad. The book just came out. It's brilliant, sentence by sentence book. It's really beautiful. Uh, and I'm reading uh, the Water Course by Alan Watts, which is a book on Zen Buddhism. <laughs> It's cool. To try to stay a little bit level through this. And you are in California, so, you know, you got to do that. Yeah, I don't have, I mean, you got on, the, to. on the East Coast where I'm, I might have to hide it. But, <laughs> yeah, now, right, but right. now I can just be out and everyone's like, yeah, I read that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it could be okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, those, that's what I'm currently reading. Uh, before that, it was Margaret Atwood. I like, mm-hmm. I like uh, sci-fi and alternate reality a lot. Mm-hmm. Have you so, read Octavia Butler? No, I haven't. I've been. Uh, I've check been. Her out. Yeah, no. But it's after been, a while, you get toward the last novel, it gets really scary because it's real, is it right? Is it? I don't think. 
I'm not sure which the last one was, but I know that after the last one, I looked up and I was like, oh, no, because it's so real. Uh, yeah. And now with what's going on with the administration and all the political things in the world, maybe you don't want to read her right now. Or maybe you do. I do. I do. Yeah, uh, I mean, check her out. I think uh, my, my novel that I'm working on is, is alternate reality. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, sci-fi and alternate reality, it just puts humanity in a pressure cooker. You yeah, know, it well, just, and I feel like we're in a pressure cooker right now. I mean, it could. It, I, I mean, mean this, environmentally, this should, politically, socially, we sci-fi. are. It, it could be sci-fi. It could be sci-fi. I wish this was sci-fi right now. You know what's going on with I, the government? I wish it was. I think a lot of people. Sometimes I wake you. up. I'm like, no, this can't be. This just can't be. Yeah. I mean, you know, for my don't first, go on Twitter. Oh no, no, I don't. I don't. No, none of that. Yeah. I, you know, I hear about tweets. It's like, mm. like but this you is, know, this is the head of state. I mean. To come, my first vote when I turned 18, I guess it was, or 21, I forget which what, what it was at that point. I voted for Shirley Chisholm. That was my first vote. That was my very first vote. <laughs> it was predated, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. You, you'll look up, you can Google her. Okay, all right. Uh, she was a black woman. Yeah. And um, to go from there to here now, I'm telling you. I mean, yeah, you've seen, you've seen more of the, I mean, you've seen more of the process than me. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's like sliding, but you know I'm a relentless optimist, so I think it's gonna slide. But I think we got to push it right on back well, up. Cause... I'm, listening, I'm listening to Slow Burn, uh, uh-huh. and just trying to put it in context with Watergate, and uh-huh. I, and I'm like, okay, maybe you know, we've been this vile. Politics has been this, this vile? vile. This vile. I'm you trying to convince been... myself okay, okay, that okay. we've been this right, vile. Right, let me let me give you an amen. Yeah. Yeah. Like you know, I'm. We've hoping, been this file. I'm hoping against hope that it, it is cyclical. Yeah. yeah, this moment. But you know, we talked about pressure cookers, and you know, you cook, I cook. You know, at a certain point, it's got to blow, or it's got to you got to turn the flame off because it cannot pressure cook for that long. Yeah, and survive, and neither can our planet pressure cook and heat up and cool off, and you know, it can't. It just cannot. So I think that's right. Yeah, but. Um, I'm reading last night, you know, for my birthday, people give me books and I have books everywhere in my house. I mean, there's no blank wall. Um, I'm reading the biography of Madam C.J. Walker, you know, that sister with the hair products, the first black uh, millionaire, uh, black woman. And she had these hair products and, you know, people think that she was doing, uh, hair straightening and, you know, she's gotten critique later in life, um, after her death, actually. Um, but really what she was doing was, in those days, um, black women, and probably all women, didn't wash their hair but once a month. And so her whole thing was about hygiene. About hygiene, and it wasn't that she was trying to have black women look like they were white women or anything like that. It was a certain kind of process. It was a certain kind of agency that she was passing on. And she ended up being, you know, a millionaire. She had, you know, a mansion and all kind of stuff and a big business. And so I'm reading about her because I find that to be a counterbalance to the stuff we were just talking about. Yeah. You know? I mean, you got you gotta you gotta pick out the luminaries in these dark times, you know? Yeah. And right before that, I was reading. Well, I mean, this isn't the most upbeat, but I, I appreciate. No, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is a. It is an examination of the moment we're in. It is. It is, and I think there's a deep resonance between the moment we're in, the anxiety that these characters are feeling, who's in, who's out, what's dangerous, where you can go, where you cannot go, and with whom. 
you know, that's all swirling around yeah. in the cultural ethos right now. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Is there something that you wanted to read, or do you want me to? Um, I, I like the, the part you picked out from Everything is Flammable. Good, so you uh, read it. Okay. Uh, so a little, just a quick background. So the character Rai in this story is juggling kind of two lives between being a drug dealer and being a firefighter. He's just new on the fire force and this is his second active fire. Rye's second fire was one street over from my mom's. She said she could smell the smoke. It was a two alarm. It came in the sleep of night when fires tend to spring like resurging dreams, hot and hungry, turning acquired lives to ash, leaving nothing behind to truly measure the people who made the space a home. A necklace, perhaps. The gut pipes of a house, useless to all but investigators, who never knew the victims but construct a story for those who wish to know. Maybe insurance. Able to pick only a silhouette from the wreckage. That's how I feel now. The city was a tinderbox of old homes, sloping and dry, with old electrical and too many people doing too many things in too many outlets. Rye outfitted himself in under two minutes, found his spot in the back seat of the truck. They were stretched thin and put him on forcible entry, his first ever. Sousa drove with Moss behind him, more silent than usual. Babe got situated last, next to Rye in the back, no dimples. The other engine loaded up too. They called that crew Benfica because they flew the soccer club's flags in their locker. Rye's crew left the station and he prayed for the first time since Junior's christening. The fire was on the east side of the city on Cottage Street, a longer drive from the station. The houses were mostly one family there, but still packed in so the shade stayed closed. Cars lined both sides of the road, fitted tight like molars. Rye picked out the houses of people we knew. Hess with the blue eyes and little Ricky who wore kid-sized Jordans even in high school. And the Katzoff family who cooked a stinking sausage on Friday that no one could ever find in the city. I hadn't talked to any of them since I'd left. Rye held each memory as it roared past. Each unlit house passed like a breath, life-giving. So what's significant significant about that passage from your perspective? I think it's it's overwhelmingly nostalgic. It's one of those moments that they tried to cut down, actually. Um, they meaning the uh, editors? Yeah, agent and then editor. And I feel like these characters have that deep reverence in them and that deep kind of poetic inclination in them and so I had to pick some spots that I really wanted to fight for and preserve that and I think the way that they look at their city even with all its flaws is that way you know because they see the beauty amidst all the bullshit and so for me that passage and really that story as a whole is kind of a, an elegy to their friendship to the city to who they were and who they're becoming so did you pick out passages in advance that you were not, or sections or moments that you were not going to give up? No, or it was a gut reaction. Mm -hmm. It was more of, I didn't think it was going to be like that, really. You yeah, know, so when they naive. came to you and they wanted that to, you were like, mm-mm, no. Like, really? You know, I was yeah, actually, right. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> no, was, that one, no. I was surprised, you know. Mm -hmm. I think um, I was naive a little bit that they were going to just let this be and kind of be more on a sentence level and be more like with continuity right. things, right. but they were 
also going for, you know, making a tonal statement with some of the suggestions. And that was kind of the gut reaction was against the tonal changes, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Did you have to fight for a lot of things to keep in here or was just a couple of segments? Just a couple. I mean, for the most part, my editor, my editor, he would say one thing. And if I was just put my foot down, he didn't push it. You know, mm -hmm. it was my, it was a, it was a really it was a dialogue with him. So it was good. And I'm under a two book deal, so I mean, I... did you get it? Did you get it? Did you get it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I'm, I'm. He's he's a great. He's great. It was great. <laughs> you want to say something about the uh, upcoming, or are you in the middle of giving birth to it and you don't want to let us know? Uh, I will say that it's very different. It's dystopian. It is alternate reality. It is political. It is. Um, it is much more of an adventure. Well, this was a different kind of adventure. It was this, a this this is, maybe this was a journey, not this, an adventure. This is an emotional adventure. The other one is a a narrative plot adventure. With some of the, it, it has a lot to do with families too. Um, less of a coming of age, more of how do we keep families together in trying times, politically and socially. Um, and all set in a funky dystopian alternate reality. <laughs> so I'm having a lot of fun. It's really hard to write. Yeah. Uh, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. So. so can you say, for those of us that are not uh, acquainted with the publishing world, what does it mean to get a two-book deal, and how do you do that? Um, I think in general, novels are more lucrative. Well, not I think. They are more lucrative than short story collections. Um, so a lot of time, if they really believe in a writer and their first work happens to be a collection, um, they'll offer a two-book deal because they want to use the novel as the big coming out, his first novel, ah. her first novel. Um, and so the two-book deal kind of was negotiable, but it was strongly encouraged because they want to have the novel come out under Little Brown too, which I'm happy about because it, in some ways, it's it's security, but it's also you've been through the process once with these people before. You know, you know who their personalities. You know what to expect. You know how to communicate. Um, it won't be as shocking the second time around. Mm -hmm. You know, so. So you moved to L.A. before this was published. Yeah. Before or after. Yeah. Wow. And what's the interrelationship between that move and this? I don't know if there's any. I think I, I just really wanted to give it a shot writing for the screen, mm -hmm. and I had to be in LA to do that. And this was looming, and I'm I'm hoping that this kind of catapults the process. But they, um, there are some literary people in Hollywood, but there's not a whole lot. Like they, <laughs> that's not. I feel like I'm just throwing people under the bus. That's not supposed to be like a knock. <laughs> uh, but it it is kind of two silos, I would say, and. Um, they want to see something different, you know. They they buy they option novels that they think are don't take a lot of work to adapt, uh -huh. you know. So this uh -huh. this uh -huh. is going to be a harder sell in terms for the screen, right? Um, but I'm hoping that the buzz from that will maybe allow them to see my other work, you know, written a bunch of pilots, things like that. So, but no real correlation. No, like I'm waiting for this to come out so I can go out there. It's just the timing, you know. The lease was up. Yeah. <laughs> Hop in the car. The lease was up. Yep. Got another passage before our time runs out. Let me see. Should I do this? Ah. We understood lifting, moving, 
the immovable until we were too tired to move it another inch. What about that? I mean, that really struck me. Mm. That really, really struck me. Well, I think you see over and over again in this book when kind of the communication fails and the logic fails and the philosophy fails, it is the physical that you are left with. Um, and it is sometimes violent, but in this case it's not. It's just simply the physical. Like this is something we know, this is something we can do, we have agency over, this is something that we can control. And you know, I see sports like that too. You know, a lot of these, three of these, three of the four young men in this are athletes. And that is one area of their lives where they feel like they have some importance and some agency. And so for me, that the passage you just read is kind of indicative of that. This is one thing that we can move. This is one thing we have agency over. Um, this is a way to exert our personhood, you know. Is there anything immovable in your life that you can think of off the top of your head? Well, I think all of our family legacies for all of us are just there. They're there. You know, you got to figure out how to deal with them one way or another, depending on, you know, where you come from, who you are. Um, but I wouldn't say it's immovable. It's just fixed. <laughs> yeah. And what's the difference between those two things? Uh, I guess something that's fixed, right, is not necessarily like I'm trying to move it. Something immovable makes it sound like you are actively trying to move it. Like, you got to go through it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think. Yeah, through it. I think it's fixed. It's in our lives. It's to be dealt with, but it's not necessarily immovable. Mm-hmm. That gets back to the family forensics situation. Yeah. You know, it's there, or it was there, and here it is now. It's here. You know, it moves from the background to the foreground. Yeah, and I mean, the storage unit also symbolically is a very you know tangible reminder that it is fixed. You know, that they literally have to wade through the physical while they're wading through the memories. You know, they're doing the emotional and physical work simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it, the, story, uh, the story initially was called Storage, and my professor was like, that's way too on the nose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah. he was yeah. yeah. right. Uh, yeah. yeah. But for me, yeah, no, it was, it was very strongly that, that symbol and that process of dealing, of coping, of, you know, reconciling with. Mm-hmm. And what happens metaphorically, well, physically we know, but metaphorically what happens when that storage space is cleared? I think it, it you know, gives you a new lease. You know, you aren't, you aren't tethered to that fixed point in the past. You know, you are, you are capable to live in love and not, be haunted. Would you use the word free? Yeah, free, absolutely. Thank you. (laughs) You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.